This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. That's all across the African continent. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Joala Netula and Wissani Matebula. Your top stories. About five former African heads of states will meet under one roof in South Africa for two days. South Africa's Department of Justice and Constitutional Development concerned about the persistent trend of fraudulent marriages. In economics, British American Tobacco says hundreds of jobs in the tobacco industry are at risk due to illicit trading. And in sports, South Africa's Minister of Sports and Recreation to set up two ministerial committees. Let's get the news from Jala Netula first. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. At least 11 people have been beheaded after an attack on a checkpoint controlled by Libyan military strong, strongman Khalifa Hafta south of Tripoli. No group has yet claimed the attack responsibility for the attack, rather, but the Islamic State Jihadist group is being blamed for the gruesome attack. Analysts and military sources say IS remains active in Libya, particularly the south, despite losing its stronghold of Sirte in December 2016. Libya has been rocked by chaos since the 2011 fall and killing of long-time leader Muammar Gaddafi in a NATO-backed revolution. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has denied in Parliament that there is a witch hunt against ANC MPs who supported a motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma in a recent secret ballot. Ramaphosa was answering questions from the opposition. The ANC has also denied such claims despite action being taken against a member of Parliament, Makosi Koza, who was removed as head of a parliamentary committee. Action is also being considered against the party's disciplinary committee head, Derek Hanakom, the constitutional court ruled earlier this year that no action should be taken against ANC MPs who decided to vote for a motion of no confidence in the president. Still in South Africa, the country has pledged at least 600,000 U.S. dollars through the United Nations to assist the worsening humanitarian situation in Sierra Leone. The West African country has suffered one of its worst flood disasters in years. Uh, It occurred when the side of Mount Sugarloaf collapsed last week following heavy rains. Hundreds of people were killed while dozens others have been displaced. Minister of International Relations May Dengwana Mashabane says the fund will be used for temporary shelter, medical supply and food aid, amongst others. would like to take this uh, opportunity to humbly make an appeal to the South African people in their personal, personal capacities and as members of organizations to join the efforts to assist the sisterly people of Sierra Leone in this honor and in this hour of need. 
The United Nations Child Agency, UNICEF, is extremely concerned about the growing use of children as human bombs in northeast Nigeria. Since January this year, 83 children have been used as human bombs. The armed group, commonly known as Boko Haram, has claimed responsibility for these attacks, which target the civilian population. UNICEF's Mariksi Masado. There has been an appalling increase in this cruel and, and calculated use of children as so-called human bombs in northeast Nigeria since 2014 when four girls were used this way. In 2015, 21 girls were used this way. In 2016, there were 15 girls and four boys. So far this year, the number of children used as human bombs is 83, which includes 55 girls most of them under 15 years old, and this is already four times higher than it was for all of 2016. And finally, Chad has announced it is closing Qatar's embassy in Jamena and giving its staff 10 days to leave. This comes after accusing Doha of seeking to destabilize the country via Libya. In a statement, Chad says the decision was driven by the will to safeguard peace and stability in the region. Chad, Mauritania and Senegal all recalled the ambassadors from Qatar in June. They, accept, they acted after Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Yemen and Egypt broke off diplomatic and trade ties with Qatar accusing it of supporting Islamist extremists, a charge the state denies. For Channel Africa, I'm Chulani Chulo. It is 17.05 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest. Thanks very much, Joalani, for that news update. Let us start in South Africa, where about five former African heads of state will meet under one roof in Johannesburg for two days to discuss various pressing issues hindering sustainable development on the continent. The annual gathering, known as the African Leadership Forum, has until now been hosted by former President of Tanzania, Benjamin Mkapa, and it is the first time that it is hosted in the South Af- on South African soil. The theme for this year's forum is a peace and security for an integrated United and Sustainable Africa. The conference kicks off tomorrow and ends on Friday. Channel Africa reporter Kumbero Manjarere compiled this one. The former heads of state who will be attending this year's forum include Oluisegeno Basanjo of Nigeria, Hassan Shaikh Mohammed of Somalia, and Bakile Muluzi of Malawi. The former leaders will be sharing their wisdom on how to tackle some of the sustainable development challenges facing the continent. Formerly hosted by former Tanzanian President Benjamin Mukapa, the forum makes its way to South Africa for the first time. The two-day event, which will be held in Boxburg, east of Johannesburg, comes home on the heels of the 37th Ordinary Southern Africa Community Development Summit held in Pretoria over the past week. This year's dialogue will seek to focus attention on the complex dynamics that have caused continuous and endless conflicts to rise and linger and will resolve how to practically navigate through them for lasting peace. Dennis Royemamu from the Institute for African Leadership for Sustainable Development, one of the event organizers, explains. The inaugural African Leadership Forum was convened by former President Mkapa in July of 2014. And the overall theme was um, meeting the challenges of Africa's transformation. Now, since then, we have had this forum each and every year. In 2015, again in July, we had another forum uh, held in Dar es Salaam. 
Tanzania. Um, and, the, and, the thema- and the theme then was uh, on regional integration. So it's, it was moving towards an integrated Africa. Um, last year, we had, again in July, we had the third in the series of these forums, also held in Dar es Salaam and convened by President Mkapa. Um, and the theme was on businesses. So it was enabling African businesses to transform the continent. So this will actually be the fourth in that series of, of, of annual forums. But this year round, President Mkapa um, requested His Excellency President Mbeki so that they could sort of co-convene um, and, and have the forum move from Dar es Salaam to Jobek. And the idea was actually to bring in the weight of uh, President Mbeki into the, into the forum. So they will be co-convening this forum. Tabombeki's foundation, which is working alongside the African Leadership for Sustainable Development Institute, says the program features various plenary sessions in which delegates will deliberate on topics such as cementing foundations for sustainable peace and security, moving towards economic inclusiveness, and Africa's position in the global peace and security architecture. Chief Executive Officer of Tabombeki Foundation, Max Borkwana, says young people are not going to be left out in the dialogues as they will be given a chance to engage with the former leaders. In the end, we thought we would take an opportunity with these former presidents to engage with young people around the continent. We've got about 90 young people that have confirmed to be engaging with the former presidents on Friday. And those young people are um, organized by the by both ourselves, but essentially coming from, organized by the, um, the Timali alumni, you will know that we've got the Tabombeki Leadership Institute, um, where we have almost um, um, 1,500 graduates from that school and that have formed themselves into an alumni that will participate <coughs> on all of the issues that relates to the number of activities in the continent. and this. This is one of their activities that they will be working on um, together with the Tabombeki Youth Hub and, and other young people from the continent. Um, as soon as the date um, for the conference is announced, there is a competition, an essay competition um, that the Institute runs. Um, this year that competition had plus minus 3,000 entrants and that have been shortlisted into five um, some of the most amazing um, essays by young people from the continent, um, setting out um, a sort of an advisory to the current leadership as to what will they do um, to promote and sustain peace in the continent. So part of what is going to be happening on Thursday, um, we will be giving an award to one such young person that out of that plus minus 3,000 has written one of the best um, essays out of that. Professor Anthony van Niekerk from the African Center for Conflict Management and one of the co-authors of the program says it is fundamental that there is peace and security on the continent in order to achieve the goals of effective integration, unity and sustainable development amongst African nations. He says peace and security is a complex subject that involves different social dynamics that will be debated at the conference. I need to say this. We can't talk about peace and security only, or about economic growth only, or about governance and democracy only. These three themes are interrelated. They, the one touches upon the other one. 
it's almost like saying, if you don't have peace and security, you can't have development and democracy. There's a relationship. And the design of the conference is to explore the relationship between these three themes. That's why there are three sessions. The fourth one, of course, is the youth that will challenge all of the things that we are saying here today. The conference will be opened by Nigerian former president Olusigen Obasanjo. For Channel Africa, I am Kundra Munjerere in Johannesburg. It is 17.12 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest with Ms. Pumelele Zondi on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Your time is 17.12. You can find us on Channel Africa 1 or you can send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now the Department of Tourism in South Africa in partnership with uh, Travel Massive will be hosting the Women in Tourism Networking Breakfast tomorrow in celebration of Women's Month. As the country commemorates the 61st anniversary of the 1956 Women's March, women in tourism have added their voices in calling for an equitable industry at the Women in Tourism Networking Breakfast event. To find out more about the event, joining us on the line is South Africa's Minister of Tourism, Togozile Klasa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Spumelina, for hosting me. Now, Minister, can you just tell us about um, the need that you saw or you saw to have this breakfast? We have started a, a forum called Women in Tourism in 2011. This was necessitated by the fact that uh, there are studies that were commissioned on the participation of women that indicated that they are largely at entry level throughout uh, tourism everywhere in the world, a sector that is contributing immensely to a lot of uh, economic uh, activity in all uh, economies of the world. And when we're looking at, at that, it means women were not in directorships, they were not in any executive management, they were not at any of the ownership levels when, in fact, they were making such a contribution into this sector. So when we then uh, established the forum, we were looking into a forum where we would begin to recognize uh, the women and look into the issues of how they get them be respected for their contribution their representation, and also be rewarded for the kind of work that they are doing. So we created the platform in order to drive programs to support them uh, as part of its development and their empowerment, but also provide networking opportunities, as you would know, that women are not very good in networking because networking provide opportunities to share and, uh, you know, best practices and, and inspire for, for growth uh, uh, with, amongst women. So uh, we have already, as we speak, established about six out of nine provinces, the forums uh, that we call platforms uh, so that we can coordinate mm-hmm. all these efforts and we can be able to link those mostly talented women with the rest of the women to ensure that they can collaborate but they can also learn 
from each other. Mm. Um, you are saying that women are not um, great at networking. Um, then why are you only um, opening up this forum just for women to network with other women? Um, do you not see the need for them to uh, perhaps have a men who have been doing it longer than they have in order to, to learn some skills from them and network with the men? First and foremost, most, as I indicated, that they are, in fact, in the majority. But often, because in the nature of the industry, they've got long working hours, and women, you know, they have other responsibilities at home. You know, uh, they, they, they are caring uh, individuals that you can get even in organizations. So uh, they would really not see the need of networking. But here we want to open their eyes to a growth uh, because they will see others who have grown to share those experiences so that they are not just looking for instance for those who are in the employ they are not just looking to continuously be in the employ when they would have mastered such skills and experience in where they are and therefore they are ready to grow so these kind of networking experiences we're talking about what qualifications and what are the opportunities for them to get to such qualifications so that they are not thinking to say, oh, the little money that I have is to put the, the, the food on, on, on the table and take children to school. But uh, not knowing that there would be bursaries, there would be, you know, those kinds of exchange programs where they can also take advantage of and grow. Because, for instance, uh, in, the, in the South African situation, when we interacted with the industry, when we discovered uh, that women are not making it into uh, management positions, uh, few are in CEO positions, and few even own these kinds of establishments, we, we, we had a, a, a discussion with them to say, why? And, and they came up to say, no, they don't have uh, the qualifications that you require. And, and, and we made an intervention to say, okay, now, we as government, as part of the opportunities, we want to give them the kind of qualifications. We are prepared to pay. We need your commitment. Give them time to study whilst they are at work and uh, also commit that you give them uh, or you give them those opportunities to be managers in your establishment. So our pilot program was so excited that uh, already they would be graduating in october the first batch that we had that fully paid for that were coming and three of them already have been promoted in their in their establishment so so that in itself is just one example of that success uh, of that program but critical to say women you know inspire each other they get confidence uh, amongst each other before then they can they can be exposed to the the the, the, the outside world so looking at women that would uh, mm. groom be groomed uh, through these networks but uh, be inspired amongst each other that then we can have this kind of mostly talented women that we can be able to say here are women give them the opportunity because government here is saying uh, in South Africa we have set aside, 30% set aside in, in, in our procurement. We want to be able to say to government, here are those women, give mm. them the opportunity. If we are saying you are giving executive development program, here are women, here is the participation of the pri- private sector. So we want to be able to 
point them, those who have been successful as private sector uh, own business owners or who have been CEOs, want to be able to identify them through these networks to, 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 to make sure we give those opportunities to, to those women. So we are very excited because women are mobilizing throughout the provinces to take up these kinds of opportunities. Mm. Um, Minister, where in the tourism sector do we mostly find women, especially the women that you're talking about, who, um, that you've assisted, the three especially that um, have you've assisted to climb up the ladder? Where do you normally find them? Because the tourism sector is quite broad. At the moment, for instance, where we get them, we get them uh, working in hotels, we get them working in restaurants, we get them in lodges, we get them in all uh, the tourism and hospitality establishments. At the moment, that's where we have started. But our approach as the government in growing tourism, we are saying let us not confine ourselves to tourism and hospitality because tourism is a catalyst uh, throughout all the sectors. So let us open and look across the value chain of those uh, related industries that contribute to tourism so that we are able to give opportunities to women and young people who happen to be in those related fields that would fit into tourism. So we're going to expand now in our next intake in January so that we look into the whole value chain. So at the moment, they are, they are in hotels. For instance, uh, uh, the, the, the three ones are now managing a hotel. They are managers in the hotels. So we are growing our space uh, to ensure that we have more of the managers and also uh, collaborate with the private sector. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's the South African Minister of Tourism, Togo Zileklasa, joining us there on the line. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Central African time. South Africa has pledged to contribute 605,000 US dollars towards relief efforts in Sierra Leone following the devastating mudslide that has killed more than 400 people. President Ernest Abai Koroma of Sierra Leone has appealed for urgent help to support the thousands of people affected by the devastating mudslide on the outskirts of the country's capital of Freetown. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maidengwana Mashaban has appealed to South Africans to donate money to provide relief to Sierra Leone. We are announcing an initial financial contribution of 8 
million rand for humanitarian assistance through the United Nations World Food Programme, WFP. This contribution is for provision of materials for temporary shelter, medical supplies, and food aid. The WFP is already on the ground in Sierra Leone and has been identified for this purpose, and it has the requisite expertise and experience to execute this function. This will not be the only contribution we are making. Accordingly, would like to take this opportunity to humbly make an appeal to the South African people in their personal capacities and as members of organizations to join the efforts to assist the sisterly people of Sierra Leone in this honor and in this hour of need. The donations can be made to the following. SMS, the word relief, to the number 38510. That's South Africa's International Relations Minister, Maite Nkwana Mashabane. She was speaking at a briefing in the capital city of the country, Pretoria. More than half of South Africa's population is living in poverty. This is according to new data from Statistics South Africa. The report titled Poverty Trends Report for 2006 to 2015 shows that an estimated 30.4 million people are living in poverty. Black Africans, people living in rural areas and people with little or no education are said to be most vulnerable to poverty. Statistician General Dr. Badil Hutla. The upper poverty line, uh, which I talked to uh, regarding uh, money metric poverty, uh, sits at 1,130, and people who live below that line, uh, who are poor, are 80.5 million. It's the second line, uh, which is a lower bound poverty line. That line is at about 800 something rand. They are about uh, 43% are below that line. Then we have the food poverty line, which is very poverty for food. There are 25%, 23% of South Africans living below that line is about 12.5%, 12.5 million people. In all these lines, poverty has started to increase. It has increased the greatest at the lowest poverty line. That is the poor are in the brand of increased poverty. Poverty line in 2011, or rather the poor in 2011, were about 21%. The poor in 2017 are are 4 percentage points up, which is 25%. What are the key drivers of poverty and and who's mostly affected? This has been driven by the no growth at all in the economy, as well as uh, drought conditions that have been devastating. Mm. Now, having said that, the most important thing that... uh, it's a slow killer and we are not realizing it. Is that a, a key driver of poverty is unemployment. And in the recent past, unemployment has increased significantly from where it was. The poor are the children. The children are, are poor and then they move as they exit their childhood status, they move into 
uh, unemployment as they, they grow. So we have a, a population that is growing from poverty to unemployment. Mm. And of course, once you're unemployed, you get more poorer. Does the report then, you know, speak to how the country has dealt with this poverty over the years and some of the ways in which uh, South Africa has has done in, in addressing poverty? Oh, well, I mean, uh, 17 million people are on grants. Suppose there was no relief. Those people would have been in grinding poverty. South Africa has free education and all fee paying schools. 20,000 out of 27,000 children get food at school. They say water and sanitation to the indigent households, about 4 million of those. So there's a lot that has been done to mitigate uh, poverty uh, over a period of time. And that's what caused poverty to, to reduce. The key to ensuring that all, when all these hygiene issues are dealt with, that makes you think and think better in terms of your future. Uh, education has to kick in and kick in in a way that it creates productive people. At the moment, yes, there are a number of children at school, but their educational outcomes are not uh, yielding the results uh, that South Africa should hope for and they should benefit the future with. If we make a comparison between the various provinces in the country, how do they fare? Well, I mean, Limpopo fell very badly, still very poor, and uh, you can see fight backwards in poverty in Limpopo has actually uh, KwaZulu-Natal, Northwest, all of them, including uh, provinces where poverty is very low, uh, like Gauteng and, and the Western Cape, where indeed uh, we see streams of migration that are very strong. Only province where poverty has been declining is Pumalak. And of course, uh, when you look at uh, Northern Cape, uh, there has been a, a slight increase, but for the other provinces, between 2011 and 2015, reversals have been very strong uh, in terms of poverty. That is Statistician General Dr. Padeli Hutla talking to Komoto Mopolane. You are still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. You can also send us emails. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. It is now time for your news headlines with Jola Natulo at 17.30. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, South Africa's International Relations Minister Maide Nkwana Mashabane has broken a silence on assault allegations against Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe. At least 11 people have been beheaded after an attack on a checkpoint controlled by Libyan military strongman Khalifa Haftar, south of Tripoli. And finally, Chad has announced it is closing Qatar's embassy in Jemena and giving its staff 10 days to leave. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Thank you very much, Joalane, and thank you for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Now, during the world's biggest biannual 9th International AIDS Society Conference on HIV Science, which was held in Paris recently, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, voiced its concerns over what it says is a worrying trend in sub-Saharan Africa, where high numbers of severely ill people are presenting late and dying of advanced HIV disease at numerous MSF-supported hospitals and districts. The International Medical Humanitarian Agency's Southern Africa anthropologist and researcher Dr. Emily Venables joins us on the line to speak about this. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Emily. Hello, thank you. Good afternoon. Emily, can you just tell us about this trend of people who present themselves late? Yeah, so my research was conducted in Kinshasa, in DRC. And what we're seeing there is that people living with HIV are coming to hospitals very, very late, which means they're very severely ill and it's much harder to help them. And what we actually found in this hospital is that a third of people died after they were admitted. And over a third of these, again, didn't live for more than two um, days after they were admitted to the hospital. And it's something that we see in Congo and also in Malawi and Kenya. Mm. Um, and when you speak to them, why do they say this? Is Do they go somewhere first? Do they not think it is what it is? Uh, what's the problem? That's a really good question. And honestly, I wish I could give you a one simple answer. It would be much easier for us to do our work. But what I found is there's a lot of very, very complex reasons. Some of these are about the individual, the individual feeling stigmatized because of HIV. Um, a lot of the reasons are also about the community and the family. Uh, some churches play um, a very, very big influence in people's lives. And what we found was that some churches are actually discouraging people from taking their treatment, and people are becoming sick as a result of this. And another factor which we often see, which is also very important, is the cost of medical care. This is a huge barrier for people who are sick, and they wait and they wait and they wait because they can't afford to either travel to the clinic or they can't afford to pay for treatment when they arrive at the clinic. So it's a combination of the high, high levels of stigma that happen within the individual and also at a community level that are impacting upon this. Mm. Um, And when they get to your hospitals, how severe would the situation be? I mean, as I said, over a third of people um, who were admitted in a study that was conducted um, actually died after admission. And as I said, you know, it's much harder to treat people who are sick. If people came earlier, it's easier for the medical team to help them and to help their families. Um, How much of... Uh, sorry, sorry, Emily. Um, how much of your work as MSF looks at HIV and AIDS in, in sub-Saharan Africa? We have a variety of projects um, in MSF. As you know, we're um, a humanitarian aid organization, but we have HIV projects across the continent um, within our own country, within South Africa, um, also in our neighboring countries, and as this study came from in Congo, in Western Central Africa. So we do do a lot of work on HIV, and we're seeing more and more people who are severely ill coming into our facilities.
Mm. Um, and do your doctors and healthcare workers, um, do they have enough resources to assist in this regard, um, especially when people are coming in late? Yeah, I mean, resources are always a challenge in the countries that we work in, and this is often why we end up in the places that we do, because healthcare facilities in general aren't performing as well as they could. Um, So we also provide a lot of training for doctors, for nurses, for other healthcare professionals in the countries that we work so that we can provide more ongoing support and mentoring and really develop expertise in HIV among staff in these countries. So now you've done this research, um, is there any work that you're going to be doing in order to um, perhaps mitigate the situation for HIV patients? Mm-hmm. So specifically in Kinshasa, in DRC, after I finish the study, um, the team there are really working with local communities. They've started to work with churches and they've started to work with community groups to really give more information about HIV and to try and combat some of this stigma, which is really preventing people from coming into facilities. Because so many people don't have enough information about HIV that they still equate HIV with death. Therefore, it's something to fear. When we know that if people start treatment and continue their treatment, HIV does not have to equal death. Mm. Um, tell us a bit more about the stigma. You say they equate HIV to death. Is that all that it is? I think it's a lot. Stigma is very tricky. Stigma is often about not having enough information. So therefore, kind of, you know, people will believe rumors that fly around about HIV. But here the stigma is, yeah, it's, it's a fear of dying and people feel very ashamed or scared to talk about HIV. They feel they can't ask their own families for support because they're scared about the shame HIV could bring upon their family. Like I would interview people who had abandoned nieces and nephews because they had HIV and they they were scared. They simply didn't know how to care for this person and were scared of being infected themselves or of even losing their jobs because of stigmatization. Mm. Um, and you are saying that you're working with local groups um, at the moment in order to try and alleviate this. How are those projects going? So they've only recently started, but MSF always works with local partners on the ground in the different countries. So we work with a variety of grassroots and kind of activist organizations. Um, so, yeah, from, from what I hear there, starting to develop campaigns and really going out across Kinshasa into different communities to talk to people about HIV and talk to churches in particular. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Emily Venables, who is the MSF's Southern Africa anthropologist and a researcher, joining us there on the line to talk about the stigma, pretty much, that is preventing people from seeking HIV um, and AIDS medicational assistance um, until it's too late, until they go to MSF hospitals. And she says that a lot of people go there to pretty much die in those hospitals because there wouldn't be much that can be done for them when it is really too late. 1738 Central African Time.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Mbalelwa Kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Zochitika Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest. South Africa's Department of Justice and Constitutional Development says it is concerned about the persistent trend of fraudulent marriages or marriages of convenience in the country. The department says despite the beefing up of legislation including the Marriages Act and adoption of South African Citizenship Amendment Act, a significant number of South Africans are still found to be entering into fraudulent marriages with foreign nationals with the intention to facilitate the issuing of citizenship to that foreigner. The Justice Department says that the going rate for such practices has been found to be between 760 to 3,800 US dollars as a once-off payment. At times, a South African national could be rented for $150 a day. Josephine Peter is a senior legal administrator at the Justice Department. Our concerns are basically, firstly, um, the issue of the contravention of the Marriages Act, firstly, and secondly, the contravention of the South African Citizenship Act, the act that was um, promulgated in 2010, and it actually came into effect in 2013. The contravention there is that what people are currently doing, that they are forming syndicates, and uh, the modus operandi there is just to, you know, to defraud the state, to an extent that they will enter into these fraudulent marriages or these marriages of convenience, wherein you know, like they derive benefits such as you know, money, and then thereafter, then someone who ordinarily, in terms of the South African Citizenship Act, wouldn't become a citizen of South Africa. Uh, you know, like they they get to get that particular citizenship and certain benefits of citizenship then start accruing to them, whereas they're not going to accrue to them. And then thirdly, it also impacts on the statuses of the people of South Africa in the, in the sense that, uh, you know, like you'll find that uh, the, the data that will be kept at the Department of Home Affairs will reflect that we have so many people married and thereafter, you know, they, they come back and they approach the department to say, but I was never married, you know. So it, it, it also impacts on the issues of the influx, you know, like the migration issues, the international migration and all that. And, it, you know, like we are actually contributing to this high influx, which at the end of the day ends up not even being accounted for. Because we allow this thing, you know, we, we, we collude with the, and, you know, like the, the non-African nationals 
to actually default the state. Ms. Peter, the South African Citizenship Amendment Act, which you talked about, was adopted to impose penalties on both the foreigner and any South African helping them to obtain citizenship through illegal marriage of convenience. This is proving not to be a deterrent. At this stage, you know what, I would agree with you to say it is proving not to be a deterrent at all. Because remember, at the end of the day, you need to prove the element of fraud. And it becomes difficult, you know, like to, to actually extrapolate that element because remember, marriage in itself is, is actually an agreement between two people, you know, like two consenting adults who agree and say, we want to get married. But now, is it really stopping them from doing such things? Not that much. However, however, it has introduced a very stringent requirement, uh, you know, like that, that, that non-South African nationals must first comply with before they can get citizenship. But as regards, you know, like as regards, um, you know, stopping them from doing these things and actually, you know, like uh, fixing the situation at this stage, it is neither here nor there. There's also a very big challenge with regards to the abuse of the system by corrupt home affairs officials. And a few years back, there was an introduction of a new biometric smart card IDs with enhanced security features. It was hoped that it would make it harder for duplicates and false identities to be created. Is that working, seeing that this problem still persists? You know what, it is working because now there is more of a, of a cluster system, you know, like the justice cluster, wherein there is a huge collaboration and stakeholdership between the Department of Home Affairs, the National Prosecuting Authority, SAPS, and everyone, you know, like, to, and, and, and the anti-corruption unit as well has been beefed up in order to look at these particular issues. And moreover, um, now no marriage officer can now, you know, marry people without actually, you know, taking their fingerprints and all that. So uh, it is no longer as, as open as it was before. The loopholes actually, you know, like it's found in the, in, in the like it's basically emanating from the two parties first and foremost. Because, you know, um, remember that when once two people then agree to say they will exchange money between themselves and then they come in without divulging their intention, the home affairs officials wouldn't particularly know you know, um, because remember, in terms of that biometric system, you cannot come back and then deny your fingerprints and other stuff. So it, it, it actually begins from the society before it can even spill into the department itself. So um, in terms of those internal systems, yes, we are able to parry them away. However, um, you know, it, 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 it's, in, it's in between the two individuals who actually come into the fraud. And how many cases is the Justice and Constitutional Development Department currently dealing with? At this stage, we, we, we don't have the data as yet because, remember, it will first have to reside with SAPS, then go to the NPA for them to make a decision as to whether, you know, this is prosecutable or not. Then thereafter, then you may then have to then go to the courts in terms of the prosecution process. But, however, the department as at this stage does not have that particular data until somebody else actually comes forward because, remember, they'll have to be prosecuted under the auspices of fraud and not basically entering into the marriage per se. That is Josephine Peter, Senior Legal Administrator at the South African Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, on the line with Celine Dobong. Time for your economic news.
tobacco giant British American Tobacco says hundreds of jobs in the tobacco industry are at risk due to illicit trading. The company's director of external affairs in South Africa, Bungumu Samakatini, says uh, the industry has lost close to 40% of the market share to illicit traders. Reality is, if illicit trade continues at the rate at which it's going at, like now it's estimated to be at 35%, there will be job losses within the farming sector. Um, if you look at the overall contribution that we're making as an industry around farming, it's basically, you know, employs between 8,000 to 10,000 farm workers. Um, and if this issue is not addressed, those jobs are at risk. Anglo-Dutch oil company Royal Dutch Shell has started uh, gas production from the second phase of a Baran Ubi project in Nigeria's Niger Delta. The project is an expansion of the Baran Ubi development, which uh, opened in June 2010. Shell, through its uh, Shell Petroleum Development Company of Nigeria subsidiary, says the project will reach peak production of around 175,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day in 2019. Shell Petroleum Development Company of Nigeria is the operator of a Nigerian joint venture between state-owned Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, Total Nigeria, and any subsidiary Nigerian Egypt Oil Company. Meanwhile, oil and gas producer Cosmos Energy, which along with oil major BP, plans to produce gas off Mauritania coast, says a test drill showed that a key field will produce about 60 million cubic feet of gas per day. Cosmos was admitted to trading on the London Stock Exchange's main market on Tuesday. It claims the well is capable of producing 200 million cubic feet per day once fully operational. Last year, BP acquired working interests in Cosmos uh, exploration blocks in Mauritania and Senegal. Oil measures, including BP and Total, are investing in the waters of Senegal and Mauritania, boosted by recent drilling successes and relatively low costs. And South African Airways told Parliament it has a weak balance sheet and it its cost of doing business is very high. The SAA delegation, together with their Deputy Minister of Finance, Fiso Butelezi, appearing before the Standing Committee on Public Accounts on Irregular Expenditure and fruit, Fruitless Expenditure. The airline says it's annually paying about $3.6 million US dollars for leasing aircrafts. Butelezi says the airliner doesn't own the majority of the aircrafts it uses. We are in a very difficult position. SAA is an airline which doesn't own aeroplanes. That's what SAA is. And this is a legacy problem that you are having. So what ends up happening, for instance, when SAA talks about guarantees and so on, uh, getting guarantees there, you keep on increasing your debt and you keep on increasing your debt servicing. So let's, as South Africans, let's just accept it that the decisions which were taken at that time were wrong decisions. SAA is having a very, very weak balance sheet. SAA is an airline which doesn't have aeroplanes. Ghana's producer price inflation fell to 2% year-on-year in July from a revised 3.2% the month before, driven by lower gold prices. Ghana is seeking to cut spending and restructure debt and is on target to slow inflation to 8% by the end of 2017. This is part of a three-year aid deal with the International Monetary Fund. Inflation in mining and quarrying dropped to 4.1% in July from 12% in June. Let's look at the markets now. The dollar at 13.18 South African rents, 10.08 Botswana Pula and 8.97 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.77 to the British pound 
and 0.84 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,285, platinum $975 per fine ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil $52.15 per barrel. That's your economics news right now. Thanks, Usani. It is now time for your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. South Africa's Minister of Sports and Recreation, Tulas Nese, today announced that uh, he and his department are setting up two ministerial committees of inquiries, the first into alleged issues of governance and non-compliance in relation to Saskonk, and the second into the deaths at the FNB Stadium during last month's Car- um, Carling Black Label Cup. Now, Minister Nese, in announcing these investigations, said, it was no secret that these inquiries were in the pipeline. It's no secret that the two committees of inquiry we are going to be talking about were in the pipeline. Today, I'm officially announcing the terms of reference that will guide the work of these committees, which are appointed in accordance with the Public Finance uh, Management Act the Treasury regulations, but also read together with the National Sports and Recreation Act, which authorizes the minister to intervene in any dispute for alleged mismanagement or any other related matter. The minister says the inquiry into Sasko comes after a whole lot of issues that uh, has come to his attention and he will soon be appointing a retired judge and two additional members to look into these allegations and irregularities. And this comes in response to numerous serious allegations and some of you have been writing about those in the media, others directed to my office and these were from the board members, the national federations, and aggrieved individuals. Allegations of poor governance, of financial mismanagement and non-adherence to the SASCOC's constitution, and the failure of SASCOC board to respond adequately on these allegations. And in the light of these serious allegations, I've decided, after consultation of course, to appoint a committee of inquiry consisting of of a retired judge and two additional members and, of course, a team leader for, for leading evidence. Meanwhile, with regard to the inquiry into the deaths and the injuries of spectators at the Soweto Derby last month, Minister Nese says that the safety of fans must always be top priority. And I'm aware that the PSL is to hold its own investigation, and we welcome that. But this is a very serious matter where government has to take the lead by appointing an independent committee of inquiry. It is also government that can implement the legislative and the regulatory measures that any findings and recommendations may require. 
On to football news, England's record goal scorer Wayne Rooney has announced his retirement from international football with immediate effect, despite England manager Gareth Southgate telling him that he has earned a call-up to the international team. The 31-year-old scorer of 53 goals in 119 appearances for his country told Southgate of his decision during a phone conversation, this according to his statement. Rooney made his England debut in February 2003 in the 3-1 defeat by Australia at Apton Park. He made his major tournament debut as an 18-year-old at Euro in 2004. Now, Rooney's announcement comes two days after he scored his 200th Premier League goal in Everton's one-all draw at Manchester City. And finally, in tennis news, three-time Wimbledon champion Boris Becker has been appointed as the head coach of the men's tennis team in his country as uh, the German Federation looks to revive the once hugely popular sport. Becker will also have a consulting role in the Davis Cup team. As a former world number one who won six Grand Slams as a player, Becker was also a former Davis Cup coach for Germany from 1997 up until 1999, but had an uneasy relationship with the Federation. He won 49 singles titles overall, two Davis Cup crowns, and also clinched Olympic doubles gold with Michael Stitch at the Barcelona Games back in 1992. The Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. So it's in 56 Central African time. Let's check about our stories. About five former African heads of state will meet under one roof in South Africa for two days. South Africa's Department of Justice and Constitutional Development concerned about the persistent trend of fraudulent marriages. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, it's Pumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Mawame, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, run plus 27-796-957-930, plus 27-796-957-930. can also tweet us. We are on Channel Africa 1. We leave you with Despacito by Louis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee. Aye. Mirándote, tengo que bailar contigo hoy. Vi que tu mirada ya estaba llamándome. Muéstrame el camino que yo voy. Oh, tú, tú eres el imán y yo soy el metal. Me voy acercando y voy armando el plan. Solo con pensarlo se acelera el pulso. Oh yeah, ya, ya me está gustando más de lo normal Todos mis sentidos van pidiendo más Esto hay que tomarlo sin ningún apuro Despacito, quiero respirar tu cuello despacito Deja que te diga cosas al oído Para que 
pasito a pasito, suave, suavecito, nos vamos pegando poquito a poquito. Cuando tú me besas con esa destreza, yo quiero malicia con delicadeza. Pasito a pasito, suave, suavecito, nos vamos pegando poquito a poquito. Y es que esa belleza es un rompecabezas, pero para montarlo aquí tengo la pieza. Oye, oh, yeah. despacito, quiero respirar. 